There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. You know, we had a guy. We had a guy write in that he's a he's a nudist. You know. Do I know what a nudist is? Yeah, my yes. kids the other day were wondering what nudists were, and I had to explain it to them. Um. How much time do you have to spend in the nude to be a nudist? That's what I don't understand. What percentage of the day? That, that's what when I ran when I was talking to my kids, I left it to be that a nudist. Um, I kind of left it to be that like a nudist would be someone who would sort of go out of their way to do their chosen activities in a place that would allow them to do them nude. Like that was sort of where I drew. It is nude when possible. Oh, you just looked it up. I, I watched the intro of a nudist documentary. Oh, uh, that's as far as I got. Nude <laughs> that, when possible. Yeah, but that makes me and that makes me largely a nudist. No, no, because no, you'd be nude right now. No, I'd get in all kinds of trouble, like from a like a HR type thing. Phil doesn't need to. <laughs> Uh, Phil, the, Phil would complain probably. The Oxford Dictionary just defines it as a person who does not wear any clothes because they believe this is more natural and healthy. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a nudist. But um, what God is talking about with our kids is I was explaining to them that there's a, there's a, a thing that happens like because like they were kind of wondering like why do they wear pajamas i'm gonna get to this nudist that wrote in but they're talking about like why do we wear pajamas and i said that people 
tend to begin life in pajamas and they end life in pajamas, but then there's a long, long window in the middle when you don't wear pajamas, I find. I think that's accurate. Like you spend decades not in pajamas. I don't know like when it ends and begins, but you, you start and end in PJs. Yeah, if I wear them now, it's more like to uh, have a Sunday brunch or something, you know, at the house. Yeah, I can't. I don't even. I haven't owned a pair of pajamas probably since I like got rid of my Superman pajamas. Reason I'm right about this guy is he elk hunts in the nude. He says he's. He says I've hunted with trad bows, compound bows, rifles. Being nude is the most difficult obstacle I've thrown at myself. <laughs> I like this guy. He checked into it. Says his nudity is completely legal where he hunts um he says you have to be very careful about where you pick he leaves his shoes on he says he's been a nudist for many years and he says one of the main things that you wouldn't think about is just your awareness of wind direction Mm. is enhanced you got a lot of receptors yeah he says it's, it's very freeing and he says you pick your routes very carefully has he had any kills in the nude? I don't think so. He's got a nudist friend who also hunts. Different state, also hunts naked. I wonder if they have to wear hunter orange during a modern firearm season. That's when that's you get all. that you get that body paint, man. <laughs> if they, <laughs> that's all they wear. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was Bart George. Bart, how's it going? It's going well. I'm gonna. Uh, oh, you know, we got a couple things to cover before we start talking about your work. Your recent work. But uh, so all the caribou, last time we had you on, we talked about mountain caribou that are in the lower 48, which have at the time had like shrank, 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 shrank until there was kind of a couple in Idaho. Yeah. They're gone. That's been, they are gone. Like gone, gone. We're, we're pretty sure they're gone, gone, gone. Yeah. Um, we did get a little surprise. Oh, I can't even remember when it was. It's been 18 months or so ago. A couple of caribou turned up in northern Montana. Yep. Um, just a fleeting glimpse, you know. They passed through, got, you know, photographs. They were able to document them and then never saw them again. Where do you think probably, they came from? Probably out of the Purcells, but nobody really knows. Um, so that's the last caribou documented in the lower 48, and they were actually in Montana. What year was that? The, like I said, it was about 18 months ago, I think. It was okay. right when all the Selk, right when the Selker occurred was just... Yeah, I remember seeing that, tanked. that they had turned up there, and I didn't. I never really heard what the story was. Nobody knows the story. They There's no conclusion to that story. They just disappeared. What was the nail in the coffin for the Selkirk? We're not exactly sure. There was... Death? You know, there's, I think when we talked, there was, what, a dozen caribou left yeah. in that herd. And we were putting together a big project to do a maternal pen and put together a whole bunch of pretty heavy-handed management actions. And that March, when we were uh, about to really get going with captures and stuff like that, we started our census, and we only found three cows. Um, obviously, none of them were pregnant. So that everything got put on hold. Uh, we completed our census, only found the three we found three over in the Purcells. Um, I think two of them were bulls. So we decided we better get those animals together. 
then moved them all north up to Revelstoke and put them in the maternal pen that they have in place up there. Um, put collars on them, obviously, and then let, actually it was a kind of a, a stroke of luck, one of the resident animals from the Revelstoke area dropped down close to the penning site about the time they were being placed, and uh, they captured her and put her in the pen to kind of help them acclimate or whatever, hopefully they'll mother up to her, and that did work. They followed her back up to the top, and as far as we know right now, they're alive and doing well in that herd. Wow. So the last of the Selkirk Mountains don't live, or the last of the Selkirk caribou don't really live in the Selkirks anymore. They're up north. Man. I invite people, what was the name of that episode, Bart, when we covered this whole thing? Oh, I don't know. It was uh We always give them number. cutesy, clever names that are hard to remember. Yeah. Just give me I a second. I think it was number 43, but I'm not sure. Um, uh, A guy uh, at, uh, a guy that, a guy I know that works at Old Town Canoes sent me this article about a dude, a hunter who became the first World Slam recipient across four categories. So everyone knows, um, everyone knows that I happen to be a turkey super slam holder. Now, almost two times super slam holder. What 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 I what what that is is I have gotten there's there's. There's this notion that there are five subspecies of wild turkeys and, and they live in different places, you know, and I've gotten them all. And once I get another Florida one, I'll, have, I'll be a two-time super slam holder. A world slam holder is a fella who gets all five of the, you know, all five of our wild turkeys and then goes down to get this other, all five subspecies of our just, you know, American wild turkey. And then you go down to... Central America or, you know, Belize, Southern Yucatan area. And you get yourself what's called an oscillated turkey, which is a whole different species of turkey. At the point you get an oscillated turkey, you become a world slam holder. And there, there's an article about this dude. And what's really funny is he's standing there doing a grip and grin with a turkey. And it described the caption says that it's a deceased so he's holding his turkey. It says he poses with a deceased oscillated turkey. <laughs> <laughs> deceased. But so the dude, so this is what the dude did though. This is kind of like, I can't tell. I can't tell if I think this is the greatest or what thing. So he's done the world slam. So all five North American, you know, all, all five American wild turkey subspecies. And then the oscillated turkey. He's got four times. He's done it with a uh, bow a crossbow, a modern firearm, and a muzzleloader. So he's he's like a four-time four. Like, I, I don't know at what point you're hunting turkeys and at what point you're just sort of checking things off a list. I don't know. I think he's still hunting turkeys. I mean, he's out there having fun, still chasing gobblers every time, just choosing a different... Uh... A different fire. I saw a, a, it wasn't a grip and grin. It was a picture of a dead turkey today on Instagram. And uh, it was with a uh, pistol shotgun. And I was like, oh, that's yeah, cool. I could get I like into that. that. You know, because it's obviously shorter range, you know, easy to pack around. Took the dude a decade to get it done. Hmm. So that's what I wish I was better at math. <laughs> Six times four. 24. 24. So he's getting 2.4 turkeys per year to work toward his deal. That makes it seem very achievable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not crazy hard on the pocketbook either, if you think of it that way. No. 
Mike Petraska. Congrats, Mike. That's good. When I retire, man, I'm going to be hot on that dude's heels. Um, oh, you know, this is the last thing I'm going to bring up. And this is the last part, the last installment of our, I shouldn't say our, the, the, yeah, the ongoing story of like our flip-flops appropriate footwear. <laughs> this has been beaten to death. But do you got room for one last? Sure. You never know. He might learn something. So, dude, he's out like supposedly scouting for turkeys. And which he says comes down to sitting in the back of a truck drinking beer, listening for gobbles at night. And his dog, uh, he doesn't put the he doesn't put an e collar on his dog, and his dog just decides to get up and take off and heads out into a swamp. He's got his flip flops on. So the dog goes off in the swamp and it's like knee deep muck. And because he has his flip flops on, he can't go in there after it. But his buddy who's got sneakers on goes in there after it. The guy with the flip-flops takes his flip-flops off so he can run and runs around on the road. And in so doing, encounters the neighbor and scores a hunting permission on the neighbor's place. So it's sort of like an inadvertent uh, effect. You wearing flip-flops, Cal? Oh, oh, yeah. Cal's got them on right now. It's flip-flop season. An inadvertent upside to, to run around in flip-flops. Uh oh, a couple things I want to talk about too, real quick. Back when when people used to just freely fly around the country on um airplanes. Back in the long, long ago. Yeah. When I was when I was a boy, you just would get on an airplane and just go where the hell you felt like. No mask, nothing. Uh I I I travel out with Yanni and I keep wanting to bring this up with Yanni. I realize Yanni is a uh Yanni's a uh he he's like a chatter. Like you like to chit chat. With your seatmates. Hmm. More so than, than I'm comfortable doing. Oh, more so than you, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, I, <laughs> I heard, I keep, I never like brought this up with you, but like, yeah, just talking to someone, they're talking behind me and I can hear him talking and yeah, and he's telling them all about just different stuff and what he's coming from doing. And Yannis gets to talking about uh, game meat, wild game meat and, I, I laughed about this because the woman he's sitting to, sitting next to, tries to up him. And I even wrote it down in my notes where she told him, my favorite meat of all time is kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I remember that too. Because I didn't realize you were sitting in front of me until much later in the flight. But I remember when she said that, I said, is that right? And then I opened my book and... <laughs> She's like, don't you be telling me about this wild game. <laughs> You know, I also heard this dude, like this interesting story on an airplane not long ago, one of my final flights. And the guy was, it was like, we were on a plane. There's a bunch of dudes going down to, we were coming home from Bemidji, Minnesota. And there was a bunch of Minnesota dudes going down to watch their team do spring training in Florida, which I, that, that is a trip I cannot, I cannot imagine. Did you know that people did this prior to that? No. No. They're real excited. They're traveling down to watch people practice playing baseball in Florida. Mm-hmm. But he was observing to someone how the area where their Minnesota team carries on this activity, that uh, he was talking about how it got built up over the years. And he was saying how it used to be when you went down there, it was all cows. 
And now it's all buildings. And I started thinking about that. Um, remember the old cows, not condos? The bumper sticker? Yeah, you yeah. still see a few around this yeah. town. I never think of that like applied to Florida. Mm. But like that the cattle operations replaced by just buildings. I look at like every day I look friendly. I, when I look at cows, I, th- I feel like more affection toward them than normal. Um, over time. So Bart, what's going on, man? What else is happening? We got a bunch of stuff to talk to you about, about your mountain line, your crazy mountain line projects. Yeah, that's been the highlight of my spring. The, you know, the COVID stuff is everything kind of weird right now at work, but. Are you um, able to get out and do your work still? Kind of, uh, not as much as I'd like. Uh, I'm, I'm really working like two or three days a week. We don't have childcare available. So my wife and I are kind of fighting over who gets to go to work who stays home with the kids got it both both of us are supposed to be doing our jobs but we do have callers out working so we're, we're still generating quite a bit of data like you have uh you have callers on how many mountain lines uh we have five callers out right now but so these co- these callers are on a like a five week rotation so i i really don't want more than about four or five because we have to see every one of these cats every week and that's quite a bit of work you know capturing five cats a week Oh, man, you gotta go. You gotta go catch the cat and mess with it every week to put a new collar on it. We don't have to put a new collar on it. The once it's collared, though, we revisit that cat once a week, tree it basically, approach it and tree it. To do what? Just to grab that data point. So we're measuring the distance. I can get into the details now if you if you want on well, that. Oh, no, 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 you're no. getting a little far ahead of yourself. Am I okay? But uh, but here's no. I'm not getting into the details of what you're doing yet. I'm just trying to understand. Uh. In today's day, in this day and age, why, like I thought, you just put them on it and then you just sit back and reap the information. The collar and faller research. No, we're not doing that. Uh, this is pretty hands-on as far as big cat research goes. So we're looking at these cats every week, and we are then measuring their response to that. Okay, um, so let's let, let's let's back up. Let's yeah, back up. Yeah, we we can't we can't start there. Okay, where, you tell me where to start. Well, I can tell you about the project. Yeah, uh, tell me about the project. So the reason the the project is occurring, because um, we're seeing lots of depredations. We're seeing lots of cats hanging around um, ex-urban, you know, urban interface areas. Um, Depredations depredations on what? Typically small livestock and pets. Typically, the way those work, um, a cat kills whatever, X number of sheep or a couple of llamas or whatever, uh, eats its fill caches the carcass, you know, near the pasture usually, and then just lays around, comes back and feeds that night. By the time we get the call, usually it's a day or two. Um, and we started noticing that the cats are right there. Like we would turn the dogs loose from the carcass and the, they'd have the cat caught in like 30 seconds sometimes. Cat would be laying 200 yards away, bedded someplace near the carcass. Um, totally not concerned about us pulling in with the pickups and our voices and the dogs making a racket on the box and barking and everything else that's going on. Um, so it kind of got me wondering like, what's it take? Wh- why are these cats not concerned about all of this goings on that's happening so close to them? Why aren't they running away from all that noise? And then, you know, the next question was how, how close can we get to these cats? If we don't know it, how close are we walking up to these cats and, and maybe never knowing it? 
Um, oh, okay, so hold, hold there. I got a couple questions. All right. Uh, do when they kill someone's dog, do, like, is a dog small enough where they don't kind of like eat some and stash it and then come back and feed on it some more? Or do you see them doing that with house dogs? Uh, well, it depends on the size of the dog. A small dog, they'll just pick up and walk off with. Oftentimes, we don't find you know a carcass cached away if it's a dachshund or something. Um, we have found big dogs. We had a like a pit bull that was killed and mostly eaten, and that cat hung around on that carcass for a couple of days eating it um, before we caught him. And that was some dude's dog. Yeah, it was actually a service dog. Really? Like um, a full-on service dog? Yeah, they let it out to pee in the middle of the night, and the cat was just laying there waiting and grabbed it and packed it up the hill a few hundred yards and ate him. Um, obviously a cat like that I wouldn't want in my study. I get a little alley about running dog killers because um, we're running them with dogs. I don't want one of my hounds to get out in front and encounter a, a bad cat like that. Uh, and then tell me where this is kind of happening, where you're doing your work, just so people understand like where we are on the map. Uh, we're up in northeast Washington, so Spokane, Washington is where I live, north all the way to Canada, and then out towards like Lake Roosevelt, Lincoln County. Um, so we have a five-county area that we're kind of working in. Okay. Pretty rural, Bart? Yeah, uh, pretty rural. We have cats close to town. Um, had a cat collar like 10 minutes away from my house. And like I said, I'm right on the north side of Spokane. Um, you know, you could see the city from where that cat lived. We have another one right now that's working over by like Mount Spokane ski area between there and the city. So rural, but not remote. Definitely that kind of wildland, urban interface, you know, ex-urban, however you want to describe it. A lot of whitetails you know, too, right? Lots of whitetails, lots of edge habitat. Um, turkeys of, in North Spokane yeah. too, yeah. A lot of turkeys there. Um, but yeah, just broken landscape, a lot of small landowners, 10 and 20 acre parcels are very common. When you say uh, uh, dog killers, have you found like habitual dog eating cats, like cats that have kind of started to specialize on pooches? I don't think that they have started to specialize on hunting and, you know, preying on dogs, but I think cats do start to figure things out once they work, and it might have been with a coyote or something, but some, sometimes I think those cats do figure out that they can turn and fight a single dog and, and pretty easily take care of that problem. Gotcha. Uh, do, do you, ha do you see where they kill many lions or llamas? Cause that's the thing. If I was a mountain lion, man, I wouldn't eat anything but llamas. Big neck, love a lot of neck to work. Yeah. With. When they get them, do they get them? They just twist that neck. Oh yeah. They grab that big long neck anywhere. I think it's probably works for them. Uh, we see a lot of llamas. Yeah. A lot of alpacas too, which I guess are slightly smaller than a full size llama. Um, we had one cat. It was a big young Tom. Um, 160 pound tomcat and he's only like three years old right outside of spokane that killed 14 alpacas Jeez. over over the course the of about sweaters the sweaters you could make with that and they were it was a strange one because that cat must have spent quite a bit of time there he had moved between three different pastures to kill all these alpacas so over what period of time did it take him to kill all those alpacas i think just overnight but it was like a battle scene. There's just carcasses <laughs> everywhere. It was awful. Do you notice how uh, surplus, like, there's people that, um, there, there's, 
depending on how you feel about predators, right? Depends on whether you're that you whether you embrace or try to deny the thing of surplus killing. Yeah, there's it's well documented um, with livestock. We see a I th- I would venture guess more than half of our depredations right now are multiple animals. What is it like? What do you think? I know you don't know what he's thinking, but what is he thinking when he wants to kill? When he goes in and kills fourteen alpacas, it's just that he's wired to, you know, like it's opportunity, and he can't really picture his future food needs. Or is he like, this is a hoot, this is great fun? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense for him, right? Like all the risk. If I knew that if I yeah, I, I would look at that as a savings account if I was a lion and just come back when I was hungry, but rather than kill them all at once. Um, yeah, I don't know what he's thinking. I think it's just irresistible. I think all those animals running around in a frenzy and they're sort of in a, you know, a frenzy themselves. And I don't think they can help themselves at that point. How does he, how is he killing the alpacas? Typically bites to the neck and head. I'm not typically almost every single time bites to the neck and head. Was the owner of the alpacas pretty distraught? Yeah, they were distraught. Um, oh, it's a dude, funny my thing. brother, he would. My brother would. I can't imagine he'd be catatonic, man, if he came out and all of his llamas are dead. Yeah, well, there. I mean, there's a financial value, right? But the bigger thing is a lot of these animals. They have a lot more value than just the finances. There, a lot of these people count on their goats and their sheep for meat or for 4-H show animals for their kids and other things. Most of our depredations aren't on big like whatever, corporate ranches or something. These are like 10-acre places with a couple of animals and, you know, that they use to feed their family or do whatever with. So, yeah, typically the landowner is pretty upset about it. How do people, uh, the people that lose their dog, do they tend to be, uh, this is like, I'm just asking for a gross generalization here. Do people that lose their dog tend to be circumspect and, and sort of be like, well, he's just, that lion's just trying to make a living and... You know, I can't really blame them. Are they like, do they want blood? Do they want its head on a, on a spike? Like what's their general demeanor? Most of the time, if it's a dog, like, you know, particularly a pet dog, not a working dog, people are pretty fired up. They want that cat dead. Uh, That's been our experience. We have, (laughs) you know, that's the other issue. When they kill dogs, it's hard for us because, you know, if they kill a goat, most people, you know, they understand what we're doing and, you know, that we're going to catch this cat and probably kill it. So they'll let us leave that goat tied out. You know, we'll tie it to a tree, put a, you know, trail camera on it. We'll come back the next morning and if that cat's hit it, we'll go catch it and kill it. It's hard to talk somebody into letting us do that with their dog. Tying they the dog to a tree. Yeah, they don't want their dog to be used as bait. And I, I understand that. Um, I would be that way too. So, yeah, dogs are a little different than small livestock typically you gotta wonder if a cat starts out with a llama or an alpaca as prey species if that cat tries to move on to something else it uh has a very steep learning curve ahead of it due to the margin of error (laughs) for the the length and size of the neck oh yeah like an alpaca in a little teeny enclosure (laughs) yeah i could i could kill it with my teeth you know just gotta get it in the neck (laughs) Now move over know. to a badger that has no I, neck. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that it, there are very many lions that get that opportunity enough. Um, you know, if they kill an alpaca, 
typically we have to respond pretty quickly. I say we, it's really the WDFW enforcement that responds. Um, and then you guys met Bruce. Oh, yeah. Bruce does a lot of those. I help with as many as I can, and we go out and help enforcement take care of that cat. And can you guys do anything with, with the carcass at that point? Do you guys? Not really. Um, unfortunately, most of those animals, sometimes if the landowner has a tag um, or wants a cat, sometimes they can get it um, if they request that animal. But typically, no. We've had a handful of them donated to the tribes. Um, you know, the tribes will make use of that cat and the meat and the hide and the bones and different things. Um, what, what do you do with them? Just burn them up? Yeah, they just go in the dump with the roadkill deer and everything else. And people don't fish them out of the dump. Well, maybe they do. I don't. I wouldn't know if they did. I don't know. Man, I don't want to say who this was, but a good friend of mine. He um, when he was in college, he was working on these uh, net surveys, these fish surveys, mm-hmm. where they'd go out and set nets uh, in lakes. And what they were supposed to do is they're not supposed to use the fish. They had to just dump the fish because they'd put but they put out gill nets for surveys. And he would, he would, they'd go out in the work truck and dump the fish. He'd come home, get his regular vehicle, wait an (laughs) hour and go back and get the fish and then take the fish back home and flame and freeze them. Sure. Couldn't bring himself to dump those fish. What kind of fish are we talking about? He, he liked it. He was, he was kind of a white fish specialist. He liked to go get the white fish out of there, but other stuff too. Yeah. You know, his initials were MD. And he had a thirty thirty, so we called him MD thirty thirty. Yanni, you had a point. <laughs> I did. Or, or, yeah, you you were gonna say something. Yanni's taken to stroking his beard. Yeah, because again, it's it's not something I'm used to. <laughs> it's, it's, like, like, it's like he found it. a new thing on yeah. space. <laughs> um, no, I don't think I did. I just happened to glance over at you, and you happened to be glancing this direction. Oh no, I you, see, you like I I thought you had like thing you started to say. Maybe I just maybe you didn't. Oh. I spoke to, on the disposal side of things, I spoke to a Montana uh, game warden, longtime game warden, and uh, somebody in his area hit a abnormally large black bear and killed it. And he went to his normal disposal site, which was a sharp turn on the highway, um, where he'd give uh, critters the heave-ho because he didn't, he couldn't stomach taking them to a dump. He thought it was too disrespectful to take yeah, animals to yeah. a dump. Just throw them in with all the plastics and shit like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I got you. Um, but he didn't, he said, he said his physics were a little off on just how big this bear was. And uh, so he slid it out of the back of the truck, down the mountain it went, and he drove off. And the next day he got... Uh, from the the town police department, he got a phone call saying, hey, we have a very large black bear that must have rolled off the mountain above town that is now on the bike path. (laughs) (laughs) It did the whole hill? It did the whole hill. Remember that that chainsaw commercials like that? Like some dude coming down the switchbacks and his chainsaw rolls out the back of his truck and eventually he like finagles his way down all the switchbacks and there's a saw laying in a mud puddle still running. Yes. Is it running? No, it was not running. He picks it up and starts with one crank. Oh. Yeah.
This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors. Big ones, little ones. When you keep these things bottled up, it can start to affect you in a very negative way. Well, therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Like, figure it out. That means figure it out with someone who's impartial, who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like, you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Okay, so here you are. You got a dead alpaca tied to a tree. Bart. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's about it. So when we show up, we show up the next morning. Typically, the cat comes back and feeds overnight. Um, we check trail camera if we have one out. If we don't, we just walk dogs over to the to the alpaca and 
turn loose from that spot and it's kind of you know without snow it's typically just up to the dogs to figure out the in track and the out track which way the cat came from and went but what we're seeing is these cats are just laying around pretty close to us the whole just listening um, and we're not sneaking around out there we're at a house we're at a farm with a dog box in the back of the truck and yapping dogs and people talking at normal voices and um, it was shocking how close the cats would be to us sometimes we would hear there were times where we heard the jump race where the dogs ran into the cat while he was just laying around in a bed listening to this whole racket that we were making. And but and is that would that not be like when you you like to run lions? That was a hell of a start to a sentence. Listen, you like to run lions out in the very remote wilderness areas too now and then, right? Is that not the same though? There, like when you find if you find where he just killed an elk. Um, is he more inclined to, as you approach, scoot out? Like, is this something that's peculiar? Is this a behavior that you were curious about because you felt that it was counter to what you'd see in other areas, or, or aren't you factoring in the proximity to to, low, to the proximity to a suburb or people? Does that make any well, sense? We don't know. That was a real. That was a bad yeah, sense. If I think I can clarify, I think what you're saying is that you were <laughs> oblivious to it, right? And you were only realizing this because some of those cats were collared. We were on the well. No, we were. We'd realize it when the dogs would jump that cat so close to us. Oh, but it it got me wondering, like, what would it take for this cat to be afraid of people? Like, you don't obviously we don't want cats hanging out 200 feet from people's houses, laying around in the brush, listening to people, listening to engines and dogs bark and whatever else that goes on at a house or a farm. So is that normal cat behavior or is that some level of habituation? I got you. I got you. All right. That kind of answers my stupid, my, my not well articulated question of meaning. Uh, are you curious about, um, is that, just like ambivalence to human presence, a factor of just exposure to humans, or do you think it might be innate in cats? But you're going to find, you're going to probably explain how you're going to find that out. Well, we hope so. Yeah. Um, whether or not we find out if it's just normal cat behavior that's innate to cats, or um, or if it's a learned behavior, I don't know if we'll pin that down necessarily. But we are going to know whether or not we can change that behavior okay. and mo- and modify the way they respond after being chased around by dogs and and yelled at by people and different things. Okay. You guys are in Montana, you know, where they chase cats around. I'm sure any cat that gets within Bozeman city limits probably has some eyes on it pretty fast. If there's snow, especially, there's a lot of pe- there's an active community of hound hunters there that are going to go chase that cat and get a look at it. They probably won't kill it, particularly if it's a female, but um, those cats, they get looked at a lot. They get chased around, um, harassed by hound hunters. Washington doesn't have that. We're chasing cats that have very, very likely never been pursued by a dog. Okay. Um, we're, chasing, we're chasing cats that have probably never had a negative interaction with a person at all. So um, that's another one of the questions is... Yep. Um, Cause it's, it's been how it's issue. been how many years since they banned uh it's been how many years since they banned lion hunting with dogs in Washington? Uh over 20 now. Okay. I think tw- 24. I think they banned it in 96 if I remember right. So long enough ago where there's no cat living today that remembers those times. Yeah. Yeah, any of those any cat that was legally pursued and um you know I say that cuz they're I don't know if people are out 
bootlegging around or chasing cats. That used to be a problem right after the right after they made it illegal, there were still a lot of hound hunters around and they were pretty upset about it. And I think that probably happened more then. Um, the hound hunting ranks in Washington now are pretty slim. There's not a lot of people that still keep dogs because the opportunities are really tough. Okay. So you get curious about this. Like why do these cats just not care? What's your next step? Well, we started to kind of think about ways to protect, you know, the farms and pets and small livestock that we kind of suspected are going to get picked off by cats. And a lot of times, the real, a real common narrative when we showed up at the site of a depredation would be this landowner that would say, you know, oh yeah, uh, such and such saw this cat a couple days ago and my kid saw it when he was walking to the bus yesterday and, you know, it's been around. Um, but nobody, there's no method to track those cats down and do anything about them. They're just sightings, right? And it's kind of a meaningless metric. So the state wasn't really responding to a sighting because that's just a cat being a cat. Um, until it actually does something, there's no real reason for them to send somebody out to chase it and get a look at it. So I kind of got to thinking like, all right, well, if that cat's hanging around this farm for a couple of days and, you know, showing up on whatever porch or something like that, that's probably going to cause a problem sooner or later. It's obviously showing that it's not that concerned about people and noise and all the things that we have going on um, on a farm. So the project then kind of got started like, all right, so when these cats show up and they're being sighted, I want to know about it and I want to come out and chase them and see if they come back to that spot. Um, so initially it was a little bit of a you know, geographic thing, but really it's a stretch to think that that cat's going to make a connection between it hanging around a farm and then all of a sudden, you know, 12 hours later, here comes these dogs and pop it up a tree. And then here comes these people yelling at it and stressing it out. Um, it's a stretch for the cat to make that connection back to that original sighting that might've been the previous day. So it really became more of a behavior study. How does this cat respond over time? If we do this, um, you know, how does it respond to this stimuli, which in this case is your voice, Steve, over time, if we pursue it and give it this negative interaction every time it hears that human voice. Yeah, I love that you're using this podcast. Who is gonna? Uh, who cares enough about this research, Bart, to pay for it? It's <laughs> a good question. No, it's a it's a shoestring operation right now. We're looking for funding. If you guys know any place to scrounge money, <laughs> yeah, uh, imagine like, like the Los Angeles Pet Owners Association. Okay, so, the, but, so this, you're thing. saying this is on your own diamond that the Washington Game and Fish isn't helping you out. Yeah, but Bart works for the tribe. No, I know, but oh. he also does work for the Game and Fish, correct? With these problem animals. Uh, so a lot of the, the fish and game is the manager of the wildlife in the state. Kalispell Tribe has a pretty keen interest in cougar stuff right now because we have um, a reservation that's smack dab in the middle of prime winter habitat. And we have had years where we've had terrible problems with cougars on the reservation um, in yards at bus stops and all the things that you hear about. So my initial kind of seed money came from the the UCUT group, which is the Upper Columbia United Tribes. It's a consortium of five tribes um, in North Idaho and Northeast Washington. So that was the initial seed money for the research. Um, I've got a couple of grants outstanding right now, but it doesn't cost that much what we're doing. Um, like I said, we only had to, we bought six collars. I've got uh, that W, Buddy Woodbury's company doing the Garmin stuff for me. He's been real, super helpful with all the tech um, questions that I've got with Garmin and we're using their equipment. 
I think it's on loan, but they're not going to get a lot of it back because it just gets trashed out there in the woods for a month on a cat. Um, yeah, we're just kind of piecing it together as we go. Okay, so keep going on. Keep, keep going on the story here. So you explain how you work and how you use how you use this 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 podcast to to help. Okay, so as we're designing this project, we're starting to you know we're one question tends to lead to another, and that's where we ended up. So we have all these questions starting to pile up and all the the protocol that we ended up settling on to try to answer as many questions as possible I'll, I'll try to describe um, succinctly but we we capture a cat that's been sighted so Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife the enforcement group is cooperating with us pretty well so um, they are the ones fielding the calls for sightings or depredations or whatever okay. so when there's a cat hanging around a farm or a home that's spotted under a porch or wherever that it probably shouldn't be, they call me. And then we get our stuff together and go get a look at this cat. And we go capture the cat. It's, you know, Bruce is volunteering for the project and put a ton of hours into it. And I um, will go out and capture this cat and get it in a tree. And then we make a decision if it's a cat that we want to add to the project. We're really looking for adult cats. We don't want sub-adults that are still with their mom. And we don't want lactating females. I don't want to disrupt um, a cat that's actively nursing or feeding young. So we take this cat. We end up we dart it, put a collar on it, and we put a explain that darting process real quick. Uh, so we just use a, you know, it's an air gun, and we're we're working on a drug formulation. I think I'm actually really excited about because a lot of people use ketamine, uh, xylazine on cats. We're trying to save some money. We're trying to do some things different and test some different stuff and um, use a safer drug. Ketamine's a little bit dangerous, and it's also a, evidently a street drug that we have to be really careful about. So we're using a drug called BAM um, that we've used on sheep successfully. So we're testing that on the cats, and um, it seems to be working real well. So we're darting this cat. When, you're, when someone works, uses ketamine, what are they, what, like, what are they, what, what's it like? What, what's the, what are they after? I have no idea. Um, Phil? I know for cats, it's a, it's, it looks like, it looks like it would suck when you see a cat under ketamine. Cause they're like rigid and uncomfortable. And then when they recover, they're drooling and their heads bobbing around and they can, they're just staggering. It looks awful. Um, I can't, so I you don't, you never imagine. like, you never like put a little, give a little squirt in your mouth. Cause you don't want to replicate that experience of the cat. It doesn't yeah. No, It does not look like they're having a good time at huh. all. I was really hoping you guys were going to, uh, go into like the, um, marijuana side of things, like <laughs> super shot of CBD. Just get them high. Yeah. yeah. Or, we could try. Um, uh, the people use ether and knock cats out. I've heard of the old timers doing that. Um, like starting fluid, basically they'll, knock a cat out to get it out of a trap or something. Got you. And then did you hear the story we had on this show one time about a guy that got accidentally shot by the tranquilizer gun? <laughs> no. Yeah, it was quite an ordeal for him. Yeah, that they, can be very dangerous. They had to pack him down on a mule. Really? They had to load the guy up on a mule and pack him out of the mountains. Thought he was oh, going to wow. die. Got shot by yeah. the dart. That's another reason I want to uh, use the BAM. The drug you're trying to experiment with is BAM? yeah. Um, I would get that wrong if I told you. It's a three-drug formulation. It's butorphanol, I think adipamazole, and metatomidine. Um, so it's a three drugs mixed to one. It's made by a, a wildlife vet in Colorado. Okay. It's a great product. 
uh, super safe. They're using it on moose and sheep and deer and other things. Uh, the one thing it does have, it's reversible. So if I was to dart myself, I could also reverse myself. Oh, no I kidding. So you could carry like a, you could carry like yeah. a, a, a vial of antidote. Right. So I have a reversal agent. Um, I'll get back to darting the cat and we'll talk about reversing it and everything else. But um, so to dart the cat, we get it in the right tree. So if it's in a super high tree, someplace where it's going to get injured, if it comes out of the tree, uh, we'll jump it out of that tree and put dogs on it right away. So they put a lot of pressure on it and get it to grab another tree. Uh, when you do that, typically that cat's running from those dogs and it's going to grab the first tree it can get to. It's so it's less likely that it's going to pick a great big but how tree do you, and climb way to the top. How do you prompt it when it's when it finds a tree and it goes into a tree and it's the wrong tree because it's going to fall? Presumably, right? It's going to fall and get hurt if you tranquilize it. Right. How right. do you how do you willfully prompt it to jump to another tree, to jump to the ground? So we've done it a couple of ways. Um, sometimes you can just bang on that tree with a stick or a log, and that, I think that vibration drives them a little bit crazy, and they'll just climb out. If they haven't been treed very much and they are pretty nervous it's easy to get them to jump uh, we also carry a paintball gun and we, you can rattle the tree above them or actually shoot the cat with the paintballs and they'll come out of the tree that okay. way too and try to get them in a, in a better tree right yeah uh, so i want them in you know i don't want them over about you know 35 feet high and then we carry climbing equipment because sometimes they go down in the tree but once so i deliver the dart and we get this tarp hung out and it's like you would expect it's a big you know, I don't know if it's canvas or not, but it's that kind of heavy cotton material. Hey, do you have to um, hit them in any spe special spot with that dart? I always try to hit them in the hamstring. You can you can shoot them in the shoulder, but there's just more connective tissue and more likelihood of an injury. So I always try to shoot them right in the hamstring. Or, yeah, the butt. Got it. And that's a big muscle group. I'm using a one and a half inch long needle, so it's a big needle, and you have to get into a pretty deep muscle. Um, so these are just pressurized darts that are reusable. Um, so once the dart hits, you know, typically the dart comes out of the cat um, in the tree. It's not barbed or anything like that. So the drug's delivered. Dart typically falls out of the tree. We get our tarp up and just watch. And that cat, about half the time, they go down and they're stuck in the tree. And we have to climb up, tie a rope around them and push them out of the tree down into the tarp. Uh, how long does it take to put that cat to sleep? Uh, that depends. Typically, if so the BAM itself is going to take like 10 minutes, which seems like an eternity when you're out there. Um, we have decided, we have started adding a really small dose of ketamine to the BAM. Um, and it's a low dose ketamine. It's a one, uh, 100 milligrams per milliliter ketamine. So it's like the stuff they use on horses. Um, we put just a whisper of that in there and that knocks them out way faster. So those two drugs really work together well, and they'll go down in about two and a half minutes with that. Okay. And then you Which, guys are like firemen catching someone jumping out of a window. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, we'll tie the tarp up, hold the tarp up in the corners, do whatever, and catch it when it lands. Um, so you had a funny dart story. I had one of those uh, just a week ago. I was shot a cat, and we're, we look at the cat, the through the scope of our air rifle, you know, and I could see the plunger wasn't all the way down on the dart, which is a concern because it means there's still half the drugs in the dart. It also means the cat only got half the delivery. So we're wondering if we're gonna have to dart him again. And um, he started looking like he was gonna come out of the tree. He was getting pretty heavy, his head was hanging. So we got in position with the dart and the cat started moving around and that, I wasn't paying attention to the cat. I was looking at the 
tarp and I felt something. I, felt, I thought a stick landed on me and I looked down and that dart had come out of the tree and stuck in my palm like a lawn dart. <laughs> <laughs> With half the drug still in it and the sleeve was off and it's pressurized. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be embarrassing. But it didn't dose you? It didn't. Um, I just clean. I cleaned it up. Of course, nowadays everybody has hand sanitizer in every pocket, so I pulled it out and smeared some hand sanitizer in there and um, kept a pretty close eye on it. And I don't think I got any of the drug at all. I didn't feel like I did anyway. <laughs> so but. you you've got a lot of practice shooting cats with darts, though, right? Like how many cats? This is a two part question. I'm teeing you up for. What's the first part of the question? How many cats? Sure. <laughs> Have you uh, darted? Um, I am not sure where I'm at right now. So we have, oh, probably 20 cats so far. We're permitted for 35 this year. Oh, in your, um, in your whole career? I, I figured you would have shot more than that. Yeah, beyond this study. Uh, no, I didn't really shoot very many when I was helping the state. Um, that was typically their, their biologists delivering the drugs on that. Oh, I, was just I got doing you. The, I was just doing the capture part with the dogs. Got you. Um, so this project's really my most of my cat darting. I've darted sheep and deer and some other things, but um, for this one, probably 20 cats and probably, oh, I think three or four of those cats we've had to handle three different times, most of them twice. Wow. So I don't know how many darts I've delivered, 50 or 60, I guess. And uh, since they're reusable, have you identified the lucky dart? Like, what is the dart that comes out of the box? Oh, you're lucky. Like, you're like, that one is going to, that, that puts Tabby down. Um, we have identified a couple of unlucky darts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, we don't have one that I like better than the others, but we always test them before we load the drugs. And sometimes those, you know, it's just a syringe, right? And sometimes those plungers get sticky and things like that. So we're always testing them and that has helped. But I had a terrible time. The first cat we treat, I missed twice before I got a dart in it, and the gun was shooting like a foot high. And I I sighted the gun in on the flat like a total rookie move, you know. I just took it out in the lawn and sighted it in, and that's a very different trajectory than shooting almost straight up into a tree. So I was shooting over the cat, and it was launching these $18 darts full of, you know, $40 worth of drugs out into the stratosphere. Um <laughs> So that was embarrassing, but we've got it dialed in now. I haven't missed a cat in a long time. Yeah, good for you. Okay, so the cat falls out of the tree, lands on the trampoline, the cotton. Yeah, yep. if the, a lot of times the cat comes out, still has some life in it, we tie it up. We just put a loop around its hind leg and tie it to the tree and let the drugs take the full effect. Um, the dogs are tied back 100 or so yards to kind of lower stimulation. We tell people to be quiet and not talk, not stimulate the cat. Um, they are they're really paying it like visual stimulation will really bother them when their anesthesia is taking effect and it will it will slow down the effects of the drugs so we get a head cover on them as soon as it's kind of safe right and their and their head can still be up they really want to get away from you at that point they're not like trying to fight or anything they just want to walk away um, so we get a head cover on and that really seems to subdue them and they relax pretty fast once their eyes are covered so we call her the cat, we're using the regular survey collar that you see on every wildlife project, right? The big GPS collar weighs like whatever. I don't know how many grams, but they're big. And on that, we're, act, we're affixing the Garmin unit. So we're putting that, that other Garmin um, 
T5 tracking unit. It's basically the same thing you get from a, um, same thing for a dog, right? We're affixing that to the Vectronics survey collar. And with that unit, we're able to get two second data on the cat. And then- What, what does that mean? Uh, so on the survey collar, I'm getting data every four hours. So okay. I kind of have an idea where that cat lives on a four hour route, you know, every four hours I get a point. So over time you get really good data, but I only have a month. I'm not trying to determine home range or any of that stuff. I just want to know where that cat's at right now. So with, a, with this Garmin, it's the same thing I use on a dog. I have a handheld that shows that cat's location, shows my location, and shows the dog's location. So when I'm in the field, I have this real-time data on the cat, and I know within two seconds where that cat's at and when it's moving you. and how fast. So you basically, I mean, you know right where he is at every moment. I know exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's, um, so to my knowledge, it's the first time anybody's done this with cats anyway, with that kind of data and that kind of field um, capability. But so, Bart, why even attach the, uh, the regular GPS collar? Uh, because battery life is an issue with the garments. We're still working on how long we don't really know how long a battery will last in the winter time it seems like we're getting about a month out of one of those batteries uh right now it's extended out to about six weeks i think but i just didn't want to have a cat running around with a dead collar on it and have no way to go recapture the cat so that yeah. normal survey collar has the four hour data and um vhf capability so it lasts you know i get two years of battery life out of that unit um, compared to that other collar where I'm getting two second data and this is going through the battery fast. When this cat wakes up from getting tranquilized, I know this isn't the, the, the object of your study, but when, when you tranquilize the mountain lion, um, you put the collar on it, it's effective immediately, right? You can just start tracking him instantaneously. Yes. How far does he go and how long, how much time goes by before he's back to like acting like a mountain lion? I, with this, with the BAM, the recovery is fast. I think they start acting normal far more quickly than they do with a ketamine capture. I think that, that ketamine capture really it causes, you know, for lack of a better term, a hangover for that cat that lasts a, a day or two. With the BAM, we see movement pretty quick. Um, once they recover, because we reverse it, remember, so... We reverse that cat, and within about three minutes, that cat is on its feet and running away from us. And how like, far will he run before he goes? Like, how far does he haul ass before he like chills out again? Not far, maybe a hundred or two yards. I mean, they're oh, not that's very it. Far. Doesn't just run for miles just to no, get out no. of there. Huh. Nope. So they they move away from us, and we get out of there. And so before I leave, I put that Garmin collar to sleep mode, so that saves the battery life and. When I want to go find that cat again, I use the VHF on the Vectronics collar. I get close and I use my handheld Garmin unit to just wake that collar up. So it's in wake mode and then I start generating that two second data. So I'm not logging data all the time. It's only when it's awake. So it's kind of a nice function to save battery on that unit. So how much time will elapse before you go back to look at it? I've been trying to give them at least five days after capture to go re to go have another look at that cat to recapture it. Um, and typically, how far away are they from where you originally caught them? You know, we've had a couple of cats that live on the same mountain the whole time. We've, we've studied them, and then we've had others that bounce around, you know, six, eight, ten miles over the course of that week. 
So it just really depends on the cat and also the time of year. You know, the cat that lived on one mountain, the whole project was in the middle of winter, is up north, um, up by Colville, Washington, deep snow, had a nice piece of winter range uh, for deer and that cat was just living right above the deer and it had no reason to leave. And then after you tranquilize them and collar them, what's the soonest you've seen them actually kill a big game animal or kill a large animal after that? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't really paid attention to that. I know one cat, we collared her. So we were approaching her to collar and she had just killed a deer. The deer was actually hadn't even been dragged to a cache. It was laying in an open field, basically, or meadow up in the mountain. So she had just made a kill. We collared her. And later that day, she was on that deer and drug it into the brush and, and ate on it for about a week. So, Oh, so pretty um, quick turnaround to going back yeah. to normal. Yeah. Yeah. She started acting normal pretty quick. Wow. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Like kills. If you did that to a person, dude, they'd be whacked out for the longest time, man. Yeah. They'd be seeing a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they, well we would be thinking about it too much she's just her belly started growling and she said oh yeah that's right i killed the deer this morning all right yep. i think i can ask a good prompting question um can i what are the like the data points then that you're actually looking for now that you've you, you've you've probably got the data point of like where you, you caught it right and that's your yep. st- start and then so what, what what are the data points that then next time you go in that you're capturing so there's really, there's three important data points that I'm gathering, and that's um, more important than the actual point is the, the distances in between them. So when a week after we put a collar on a cat, we go, we approach that cat. And when I'm within about 400 yards, I start the podcast uh, on an 80 decibel little Bluetooth speaker. Do you play the intro? Because it's going to think its tree is falling down. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't play the intro. No. It's actually, I'm, I've only used like two podcasts. It does, I don't, I'm not out there that long. So um, so you don't pick your favorite parts? No, I've just got one podcast that's been playing for the same, for the cats for quite a while. Okay. okay. What, what, do you um, mind me asking real quick, like what, uh, what's going on in the show? It was the uh, Polar Expedition show. I'm All to those people eating at. each other and everything. That's that right, probably turns right. a cat on, man. <laughs> Yeah, they don't like that. <laughs> and then the other one was uh, that gentleman that wrote the book about Davy Crockett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, I listened to, I mean, I want to read that book now after listening to you at 80 decibels for an hour and a half talk, talk about it. It's like, I feel like I have to read it. Um, so I approached the cat from about 400 yards. I'll start that podcast. And I start approaching the cat on a, basically a direct line. And I know exactly where it's at. I've got it on the handheld and I know where I'm at. And I don't have dogs with me or anything else. I'm just walking up to the cat with this human voice playing. The important data is... And he, like, hold, hold on, back up, back up. Uh-huh. And he's like in a predictable place. Are you like, oh, he's, he's in a cliff or he's in, you know what I mean? Or are they just like out in just weird places? If it's in the middle of the day, which we're trying to, trying to capture cats or recapture cats in the middle of the day, it's a pretty predictable place. And we're starting to make some connections that way about um, when cats are on the move compared to when cats are in a bed, how they respond. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there's a little bit of individuality that way too. Um, some cats are a little more comfortable laying out in a less uh, of a thicket, and some cats really hole into some gnarly little thickets or rock overhangs and things like that. So they like they like to lay in the thicket. 
we yeah there are some cats that lay in a thicket that's like impenetrable thickets oh no kidding and when they're in one of those they feel very safe you can walk right up to them got you okay so, um, so uh, i didn't mean to derail you there i was just curious about no but so no, what's, so, what's the more open location look like uh a penetrable thicket <laughs> Okay, so it's never like yeah, he's just laid out in the sun in the middle of a hundred yard grassy meadow. No, they we do find them laying in open forest on occasion, but tip, if they are, it's like at the base of a tree with you know heavy with branches. Yeah, and stuff I feel like, like that. when we chased those the first day, we chased lions with you in northern Idaho. Didn't we find two beds that were in a pretty open yeah fir forest? Yep. Yeah, that was open forest there up up against you know old yeah. growth cedar trees though. Yeah. I mean, they had some cover there still cedars. So they like some cover. They like a thicket. They like a rocky spot. Yeah, we find them in all of those things. Overhung rocks. We've had a couple of cats that we walked right up to that were in overhung rocks. Um, we actually had one Monday that was um, we got within what, 30 yards of. She was laid up in a rock pile. Okay. So you start playing this thing and walking toward them, and you start playing it at 400 yards. Yeah, 400 yards. I turn the podcast on. I approach them in the most direct line. How loud and is it? How how loud is it for you? Like you're playing it to, uh, uh, to it's like that's an annoying level for you. Yeah, it's it's annoying. It's an outside voice for sure. Okay, okay. Um, it's not a it's not a shout necessarily, but it's a loud talk for sure. Okay. If we were talking, if we were walking in the woods talking at that level, it would be annoying probably. Got it. Um, so they're hearing it from quite a ways. Uh, so as we approach this cat, uh, the the important data that I grab is how close do I get to the cat before it gets to its feet and leaves. So I grab, at that point I stop, I get my location, pin that, I get the cat's location, I pin that, and then I just watch that cat and I keep the speaker playing and I just stand still and I let that cat move away however it chooses. Whatever that flight looks like, however much energy it wants to put into escaping my approach. And the cat moves away, and I get typically that happens within about oh ten minutes. And once that cat stops moving for you know I don't have a set amount of time, but once it's hanging out in an area and not really going anywhere, I call that the end of the mobilization. And I grab that distance. So the two important measurements really are the distance from me, the stimuli, and the distance of the flight. And then I hop on the radio. I walk up to where that cat was laying around. I hop on the radio and. Uh, tell Bruce, kick the dogs loose. The dogs are now trained to like track me. If I ever get lost, the dogs are going to find me in a second. They, they know what's going on now. So they track me to the site of the cat's bed. And once they get there, they take off and go tree that cat. What are the distances like? The, the cat's responding at what distance typically? So we are seeing those distances extend over the course of the project for oh, pretty much every cat. The, oh. first time, the first time we approach a cat... So Monday was an exciting day. Monday was the first cat that I've walked up on and actually looked at before it ran away from me. And it's the first time, it's the first hazing, is kind of what we're calling this, the first hazing event. Um, the cat had been captured once. It was pretty calm at capture. Um, so last Monday, I went out and I walked up to that cat and I'm watching the GPS and it's pretty thick there, not terribly thick. Uh, you can certainly see, you know, 40 or 50 yards in the forest. I'm watching the GPS. I'm like, man, I'm getting pretty close to this cat. He ought to be. It's like that scene. Moving. It's like that scene in Red Dawn when the dudes in the white suits, the Ruskies in the white <laughs> suits, start tracking that kid down. Right. 
Oh. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it was unnerving. <laughs> I'm looking at my GPS unit like, is this thing updating right? Like, what's going on here? Do, do you get nervous? Do you get nervous around mountain lions? Um, I had my gun out. <laughs> I had my gun out of its holster. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I was nervous. Um, I mean, what? I was close. I got within 19 feet of him. Holy smokes! He just is laying there ran. listening to the podcast. He He's like, dude, it. this is fascinating. Yeah, I can't get enough of this guy. <laughs> So he uh, he was bedded underneath a kind of a leaning log, and I hopped up on top of the log to get a better view and get a little bit of elevation. And when I did, the end of the log moved, and I think that unnerved him, and he ran out from underneath that. Um, so that's the first one that I've actually watched run away. Wow, man. And then and he it, ran. 19 was, feet. Sorry, to, to be clear, this was the first time you had gone in. Right. After this cat, after the Yeah, capture. so this cat, okay. this is the first time it's been exposed to this stimuli. So it run, it ran off. It only went seventy five feet and stopped and would not move. And I'm like, really? Now I'm unnerved at this point. So I'm hollering and I'm watching the GPS very closely to make sure it's not circling me or coming back to me or something, because um, it knows I'm there. It has seen me. It's hearing me, and now it hears me hollering at it over the podcast. Um, and it sat there for a long time. I mean, several minutes at seventy five feet. And finally, I'm like, well. I guess we have to turn the dogs loose. It's that's that's it's flight. That's what it's going to do. It's not going to run from me. Oh yeah, um, yeah, I got you. So it's, you mark down his 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 flight is seventy five feet. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty close. So it the dogs treat it within about four hundred yards, and um, at the first at the first hazing event, we shoot them with a paintball gun. We tie all the dogs back, take them back to the truck, and we shoot that cat with a paintball gun to give it a to reinforce that negative stimuli and holler at it, you know, and kind of try to stress it out a little bit that first capture event so i'll see what he does we're going to go after him again next week and i'll probably take somebody with me this time just because and presumably um, he'll not, i think he's he'll gonna not i think he's happen. gonna get out of there yeah that has been our experience the first the first time we approach a cat they let us get quite close um i we have not had one flee from outside of 100 yards yet so we're within 100 meters of anything right now the first time. And we have complete data, I think, on eight cats now. And pretty much across the board. Complete meaning that you've done it four or five weeks in a row? Yes. So that's cats that have been collared, hazed four or five times, and then uncollared and released. And are so, you seeing that they, it grow every time? Not every time. Um, we do have a couple of negative data points. Uh, we have a couple of cats that let us get a little bit closer, you know, on the third or fourth event. Um, some of those are easily explained. Some One of those cats was sitting down by a creek in a thicket, probably didn't hear us with that running water right next to it, um, let us get pretty close. Another one was up with a, uh, it was a tom, a big tom, 175-pound cat that had a female, and they were laid up in a rock pile together, and he let me get quite close before they mobilized. So which is to say were, that which is to say as well that she let you get quite close. That was an interesting deal for sure because he left first. He was in a little town called Ione up north, and he was in a woodshed when we darted him. Actually, he was in a woodshed, and we couldn't get him out. We shot him with a slingshot to get him to run out of the woodshed, and I couldn't get a dart in him when he was running out. And he went into um, a carport and was hiding under a boat. And I tried to get a dart in him there, and he squirted out the back of that and went under a deck. And we ended up having to dig, ton, you know, it's deep snow. It's chest-deep snow. 
we had to dig a tunnel kind of down underneath the deck and he, I got a dart in him there. Um, so that cat had some experience with people and he lived in very close proximity to a little town. And the first time we went after him, he was up in these rocky, cliffy, this terrible spot to walk around and hunt. And, you know, in the GPS unit, you're looking at data from overhead, you know, so 15 yards might mean 100 or 200 vertical feet if it's cliffs, which is in this case is what it was. So that data is difficult to explain. Um, I, yeah, so I'm with I, you. Yeah, I got within 40 meters of him, but he was uphill of me in this overhang with a with a female that, you know, line of sight would have been 100 meters or something. So Yeah, I got you. Difficult. So he left, and I circled around, and I got up on top of the cliff, and I found his tracks, and I was sitting on his tracks. And at this point, I didn't know there was another cat there. So I was sitting on his tracks just kind of watching the Garmin unit and filling out my data sheet and grabbing data that I needed. And he got out a few hundred yards, and I still had the podcast playing. And I hear something to my side, and I look over, and there that female is walking on his track straight at me, and maybe 15 feet from me, and slips down through that same little crack in the rocks that that male had just used to escape. It kind of seemed like without a care in the world about me. Hmm. Uh, she was, and you're making she noise because you're still playing the noise. Oh, yeah. But yeah she's, she's walking she, toward the noise. Yeah, she walked right up close to me, but it was, yeah, her desire to follow that Tom's tracks was pretty strong. She pretty much ignored me to do that. And we got eyes on him twice before he went in a tree that day. He was just a pretty bold cat. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often as the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older 
consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months... I've become friends with, and my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them, and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. I'm surprised that I don't picture you're going to have a continued problem, uh, funding your work i don't think so We're it would seem a lot, that of, a lot of people would be like really interested in this and how to because the thing about cat it's not like rats right it's not like where you have just thousands and thousands of them and there's nothing you can do like what do you have mountain lion problems or mountain lions that you want in, in areas where they're imperiled and not doing well you're talking about like a small number of animals so you could right. actually go through and give them some white glove service, so to speak, and, 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 and be targeted about it. And it'll still make sense, you know? I mean, cause there's, there's so few of them. It's not like, it's not insurmountable right. to go into an area that has a lot of lion problems and, and adjust some lion behavior. Right. Yeah. And I had a biologist from California reach out to me and he's got some interest in replicating the project down near San Francisco on a, one of the big reserves that they have a lot of what they believe are habituated cougars, cougars that are kind of just laying around in day use areas um, and sort of don't have a care in the world about people. And I don't tend to make a whole bunch of promises about what we can do, but I can like, I did promise him like, if there's a cat laying in a day use area, I promise I can change that cat's behavior to not do that anymore. Like we can, we can adjust that cat's attitude really quickly with dogs and paintballs. Have you messed with, I know that like I, I support using the podcast. I think it's a great idea. It's a great touch. But have you um, experimented with other stimu- other stimuli? Like do they hear free like, like a dog, for instance, do they hear frequencies that humans can't hear? I don't know that. Um, 
I have considered using the sound of dogs barking rather than a human voice to approach the cat and see how they respond. Not like a, not like a hound's bang, but like, you know, a border collie yapping around or something that a yeah. cat's going to hear, I mean, fairly regularly. If we get to a point in the project where we have good enough data and solid enough data with the human voice stimuli, we will switch to another sound, but it will probably be either like the sound of equipment droning on like a four-wheeler or like a dog barking or something that cats are going to hear that would have a management It'd be a management action, right? Like something yeah. that you could tell people. You could tell people, like, yeah, once we do this, this cat's probably not going to go close to your barking dogs or whatever. I had a friend that used to to design soundscapes and in, in films, and um, you know, when you're watching a movie, you know, and there's people sort of like driving around, and you're hearing the sounds of the city. Uh, he would like design those, huh. just just the ambient sound, you know, in okay. films. So yeah, like it just that you'd make a soundscape of just human activity, you right. know, doors shutting, kids, whatever, people yelling at their kids. It'd be like my house, yeah, and get them used to that noise. <clears throat> right, and then the obvious thing that you know, if you let's say you did this over the course of time in an area, um, it's a small area. This isn't something that I expect to happen across the whole region or something, but it would be interesting then to see how cats responded to just a speaker at a house or out in the woods, say, see how they moved around the landscape to see if they avoided that or just passed through like they always have. And is there a thing you can do to them that they really, really hate? Touch them. Yeah. If you can get contact with them, that paintball or anything like that just drives them crazy. They hate that. They don't like it. No. You change your shot placement uh, when you're doing the negative reinforcement. Like aim for like point of the shoulder or something, something that's gonna tip of the nose, bruise. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I'm when I'm shooting a paintball, so that's I was kind of experimenting with this permanent paint that foresters use. They mark trees with this stuff, and it lasts quite a while on a tree. Um, so, so, I bought some of these fancy paintballs with permanent paint in them, and I wanted to see how long that would last on a cat. Just so if we had a cat that was causing trouble in an area, a sighting, I didn't have a collar available or whatever. All right, we'll go, we'll go mark this thing. And if it, you know, without having to drug it and handle it, we're not going to put an ear tag in it or anything else. If that cat shows up, hopefully the people that see it would be able to say, yeah, as it turns out, it had a bunch of blue paint on its side. So I wanted to see how long that paint would last. And it turns out it's not that effective. It comes off fairly quickly, but I was trying to shoot the cat forward in the body where it wouldn't be able to reach back and lick that stuff off. So I was shooting him in the front of the shoulder, neck, and back. It's kind of where I was aiming. But I don't know if that, I mean, anybody that's played paintball knows those things. They sting. They're not going to break skin on a cougar for sure, but they do sting. And making contact with that cat drives them crazy. Have any of the cats that you got uh, right now, how often do you have a cat that has a collar on it then it gets killed somehow or another while like unrelated to your activity. So that big tomcat that I was talking about in the cliff yep. uh, just a minute ago, he got killed. He, he took off after that day and walked all the way into Canada about 10 miles north of the border and got himself killed by a legal hunter up there. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I got that collar back. Um, and then another cat was uh, down here close to Spokane. It was a cat that... Uh, were, were you pissed that the guy shot your collared lion? 
No, I don't care. It was a whatever. That's the that's the deal. He's was, a legal was, hunter. Was he aware that it had a collar? Oh yeah, no, he knew it had a collar. I think he was a little bit nervous. He was like, he was a little bit reticent to, to call me. And, you know, on the caller, it has my name and phone number and says, whatever, please call if found. It took a little, I actually saw it on Facebook before. <laughs> I think I actually, I think I actually reached out to him first. Um, but I think, I You're like, think I'm not mad. I just yeah. want my collar back. Hey, by yeah. any chance, that collar lion you shot. Right. Well, it's got, you know, that's a $1,500 collar plus the garmin collar plus all the data that's on it which is you know that's three or four days of work worth of data that's stored on that garmin unit that i really want so yeah i, I called him and i was like hey look congratulations that's a big cat i can <laughs> i can send you some pictures of him if you want you know pictures of him in a woodshed and pictures of him in a tree and whatever pictures of him with anesthetized and whatever else so once he knew that i was not mad and i was also a hunter and you know congratulated him on such an awesome cat he was he softened up a little bit and sent me my collar back and that was a 175 pounder yeah it was a really nice cat oh man it's cooler for him too because you can be like i can tell you exactly what that cat's been doing you don't have that's to right. guess oh yeah he'd be like and yeah. then he ran over to this tree and then he ran over to this tree <laughs> that's right yeah he had an ear tag in too i don't know if they i'm sure they pulled that out for the taxidermist but get a little jewelry too Wow. And and uh, remind me again, how many cats you got running around right now? Got five on the air right now. So I haven't really got into a couple parts of the project that are fairly important. One of them, um, so once that cat runs, I'm getting the I'm getting screwed on this deal as far as seeing cougars, other than happening upon one here and there. Um, I, 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 I don't understand. What do you mean by that? I'm not even going to the tree anymore. So Bruce and the other gang walks to the tree. And I am now measuring the habitat. So I'm grabbing all this data from the flight of the cat. So once that cat you. runs away, once that cat runs, I measure the distance. You know, let's say it goes 200 yards or whatever, meters. Um, I then lay out a tape and I measure the slope. So did that cat run uphill or downhill? I grab a slope measurement and then I grab... Um, the basal area measurement. So it's a forestry measurement that kind of tells you the forest type. It'll give you a rough idea how wooded it is. And then also shrub component and, you know, if it's a thicket or if it's running through fairly open stuff or down a road or whatever. So I'm trying to describe then um, how much energy that cat used to escape. Are you uh, taking note of the wind too? Wind direction? I have a wind noise factor that's... Uh, just one through five. And no, I, I mean, so does I he play the wind when he runs? Oh, I haven't no, I haven't paid attention to that. Dude, I'd add that idea. to your stuff, man. Yeah. Does he? Because maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe he always goes into the wind. It would be an interesting thing to start to test some of that as far as circling upwind or downwind of him, too. I should have been a scientist, man. You should have been a scientist. You should come along. Dude, I'd have all kinds of science things I'd figure out. Yeah. That'd be fun to circle, give him, give him the wind advantage and see if they mobilize more quickly or not. Yeah. So I'm grabbing all of this habitat data to, for the escape path, and I'll use that um, to kind of help describe distance with, you know, capital D distance then. So rather than just a linear measurement, it will include all of this other stuff. Like if it ran up and over a cliff, that might only be a couple hundred yards, but that's definitely more energy to escape yep. than just jogging down a two-track road. Um, and then I'm also grabbing some data when we get to the tree, uh, 
kind of measuring the behavior of that cat and we have we've kind of had to develop this scale but i don't i think it'll be useful when we're done we'll have a lot of it how that cat's responding in the tree how it, is it snarling is it urinating is it jump bailing out and finding a different tree how high is it in the tree is it moving around whatever so we measure all that stuff for number of times per five minutes that it's treed and we're seeing that number change as well the cats tend to by the end of the project tree quite a bit higher and be quite a bit calmer where they're not dancing around in the tree they kind of know the routine by about the fourth or fifth time we're capturing them it's like they just grab a tree before the dogs are very close to them and they climb way up high and they're just like laid out relaxed when we get there that's not going to bode well for them when they're traveling like that one when they're traveling into hunted areas they're going to make yeah, them e- they're going to make I them mean, easy pickings maybe i mean it, it might also have implications in wolf country which almost everything in northeast washington is wolf country now so i don't know how that'll if that will play out or how it would Oh, yeah, because you were mentioning that, that that you find that cats that have exposure to wolves, you were wondering if it changes their attitude about whether or not they need to get into a tree or not. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I think you know, it's well documented that a single wolf is trouble for a cat, like if a, or is in trouble if it encounters a cat. A cat will kill a wolf when it gets the opportunity, as long as there's not a bunch of them. Um, and I think it's not a far stretch to imagine those cats learning that on a single wolf a couple of times in their life. And then all of a sudden this single dog shows up that's half as big as a wolf yapping. And they're just like, well, I'll just kill that. Cause I've done this before. So a lion will kill a single wolf. Yes. Not vice versa. Oh, one-on-one. It's a no contest. Lions are, yeah, they're deadly at all five ends. Huh? Yeah. That wolf doesn't have a chance. Well, that's interesting. I wouldn't think. I guess I don't know. I mean, unless it's a sub-adult lion or something else, an adult lion versus an adult wolf, I'd say lion every single time. Yeah. So what's next, man? Um, well, hold on. I got. I feel like we. You told us about the the negative uh, changes in in the a couple of the data points, right? When you went back subsequently, but what on average is the change after the hazing for the third, fourth, and fifth? times you come in there with the podcast going yeah um good question the biggest the biggest change almost always occurs on the second hazing so that cat the second time it happens i think they're still pretty freaked out and it's been two to three hundred percent of both the flight initiation and the flight distance and we've had some that like don't stop running. We've had some cats, once they mobilize, they run like 900 yards, a long ways. Whoa. Um, so they're getting out of there. By the end of the project, these cats, without exception, we haven't had any cat let us get closer over the course of the project. We've just had a couple, when I say a couple of data points, I mean like outliers. Like we caught this cat four times and one of them was a negative distance. Yeah. All, uh, yeah. So of the you know let's say we have eight cats with full data you know four to five points each you know 95 percent of those points are positive and two to three hundred percent is a pretty standard increase so that's why you feel so confident if you went if you had a problem line that was hanging out at a day use area that you felt like you could go in there and do this for a month and that would cure his that habit of his or hers yeah for sure and i think you know the other reason that second 
might be so significant. Uh, that second hazing event, might, that increase might be so significant because at the first hazing event, we shoot them with paintballs. If we did that every time, that distance might just continue to increase until as soon as that cat heard Steve's voice, it hauled ass. Oh, so you guys don't continue that, the paintballs? No, we just shoot it the one time. Why is um, that? I don't know. I kind of feel bad shooting them every time. Like, I don't want... I don't know. I, I just need to learn whether or not it works. I don't need to torture a cat. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to make a man-hater out of one. Well, yeah, so... Again, this I want this to have management implications where when a cat's hanging around a farm and it gets sighted, they can call somebody with dogs and say, "All right, go tree this cat and shoot it with paintballs and we have a and have a reasonable expectation of how that cat's going to respond in the future." If you give it a known, if you give it a stimuli that it can associate. Right. Well, and then, and then replicate voice. that, then then you have to turn around and replicate that stimuli to get the desired effect out of it. Well, I don't think you would have to, I mean, I don't think, let's say, whatever, after this project's said and done and um, we get a call, hey, there's a cat on the edge of a neighborhood, can you go chase it out of there? I don't think we would have to go approach that cat with a voice recording or anything else. I think we could go capture that cat, bang on the tree, shoot it with paintballs, and it would make the association between our, because we're talking while we're at the tree. I mean, it's hearing human voices the whole time, right? Yep it would make that association that way. It is interesting though, because I mean, you said in the beginning that some of these cats were hanging out so close to these, you know, urban interface kill sites where they're likely hearing a lot of human voices too. So you're fighting against this kind of, maybe not a positive uh, interaction, but it's kind of like this background noise of human ranch work, farm work, but I can still go down and pick off a alpaca or a dog or something like that. So, right. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the real, that's one of the misconceptions I'm having a terrible time with on this project. A lot of people think that I'm going out and trying to chase this cat away from a farm with the expectation that it's not going to come back to the farm or that area. And that's not really it. What I want is that cat to avoid all of these human associations. Um, and I don't know if we'll get there or not, not for all of the cats, not for all the time, but <clears throat> I think there is an argument to be made that the cats being uh, messed with are going to behave better. Is there a version of this you could uh, attempt on grizzlies? Not with my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they do this. Are they just hell on dogs if you, go to, if you try to run a grizzly with dogs? They're just hard on the dogs. I, I've never done it, but I have heard stories about people getting on them. Um, and I guess they're long runners. They're straight line, long runners. Like a black barrel tend to circle and a grizzly barrel just line out and go. And then, of course, they don't climb. They just bay and fight. So, uh, I mean, people certainly do it. There's like famous hound hunters from back in the day that collected bounties on grizzly bears by using dogs. And I don't think we have good records of how many dogs they went through over the course of that time, but probably a lot. Yeah. I mean, black bears are tough on dogs. A mean black bear is a tough thing for a dog to handle. Have you lost any dogs lately? No, we've had good luck with dogs. Actually, I've still got Whisper. She's 12. Uh, Nosey's nine. Radar died of cancer two years ago. And what's the, one um, that got, what's the one that got mauled up pretty good? Nosey. Yeah, she's hanging in there. She was with me this Monday. She treed two cats with me. Does she just Doing hate well. them now, though? Oh, she hates him. Yeah, she's she was kind of a hateful little dog before that whole wreck. Now she's now she's full of it. I got so, a, we have, 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. go on with the uh, the dogs. I got a question oh, yeah. for you. That'll it's out there though. Okay. Yeah. We had, and we had a litter of pups. Actually, you remember Bruce's had that big red dog Gus. Yeah. We bred him back to Tipsy. Who? Those were the two cats that were at your tree, Steve, Gus, and Tipsy. Okay. Um, so and we bred those two dogs made together. Love, and made yeah. A, yeah, they were awesome. We have a good litter of pups out of them, and they've been on a lot of cats. Like. Um, those pups are doing most of the work right now. I think they've seen, well, 63 cats so far since January 1st um, that we've treated. So they're getting a lot of exercise. Cal, what's your question? You had to fire, you had a fire out question? Yeah. This, this would fall firmly in the uh, final thoughts type of, I got this new neighbor. California guy. <laughs> Is this the guy that throws all the good stuff in the dumpster? No. Oh, okay. No. Um, real, real nice guy. He's got a place that butts up to the, uh, Hearst castle, which is now a California state park. And, uh, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, tons of cash through the twenties, thirties, built up this incredible place. I had this giant zoo and wildlife menagerie. And there's all these stories going around that when the financial hard times of the 30s caught up to them, uh, one solution that they came across was to release a bunch of animals, the animals that they couldn't give away. And my neighbor claims that they have trail camera pictures of the descendants of Hearst uh jaguar population that have now crossbred with the California mountain lions in the area. No. And they are getting black mountain lions that are noticeably larger than your typical mountain lion. Uh I have come my on, doubts. Come on. Oh, I mean if they're getting trail camera pictures, just ask them to produce those. Like, <laughs> let's see it. <laughs> we, um I, I, does that exist though? Jaguar, mountain lion hybrids or crossbreeding of any sort? Have you ever heard of that? I've never heard of that. And if, I mean, they share range, they share habitat in the Southwest. Right. Yeah. I mean, they we would probably know if that happened. Yeah. yeah they share habitat like across, the, I think, the entirety of the yeah. jaguar's range. Yeah, probably. I mean, no, they do. I know they do. Now that I think yeah. about it. Uh, but anyway, I give this guy uh, your cell phone number and stuff. So. <laughs> oh, good, yeah. That's great. <laughs> All right, Bart Georgian, you got any more questions for Bart? No, I'm good, Bart. Thanks for uh, chatting with us. Yeah, man. I, I hope your I hope your money comes through because it's interesting. But see, I'm trying to figure out what it means. Uh, what it means in general because I don't know if it means. Um, like, does it mean that this will be? like a, a thing that winds up being used against people hunting mountain lions with dogs. Will this, will National Geographic reports on this, will they be able to twist it into a, you see, people shouldn't be able to hunt mountain lions with dogs. I got to think this through for a minute. I hope not. I, I mean, I think it's, ultimately I want it to lead to another tool for wildlife managers that are dealing with, potential public safety conflicts and uh, depredation issues. You know, like that that 
park or reserve down in California, I want them to have a tool to be able to say with some level of certainty, like, hey, look, we can save these cats' lives in the future. If these cats get in trouble, if they get in a mix-up with a person, they're going to die. Like, that's that's a certainty. Um, in northeast Washington, when a cat kills livestock, it dies. So if we can keep that from happening, and, you know, let's say it only works 75% of the time. That's still, that's a lot of cats um, that we can keep out there on the landscape and, um, you know, available to sport hunters and available for whatever other purpose. That was a good little, I like that, man. That was a good little twist in the end. That was good. All right, Bart, George, uh, how long is it going to be till you come back on again and tell us uh, what you're up to next? How long are you going to be doing this for and then go on to something else that might be interesting? Um, well, I'll be working on this probably for another year or so. Um, still doing some caribou work. If you want to have a talk about caribou, there's still some in the central Selkirks. I'm working with International Caribou Foundation trying to help out a group up at the Arrow Lakes um, save a herd that's down to about 24 animals. Got some callers out on that herd this year. So we know that there's at least nine cows up there and a couple of calves alive, but the census wasn't complete because of the damn shutdown stuff Got in it. Canada also. So. And then what about personal hunting? You hunting spring bear this year? No, I usually hunt Idaho spring bears and they won't let us come across the border nowadays. They cut off all the non-resident tax oh, sales. Gotcha. Washington, um, our turkeys. season, yeah, our season will be open here in a couple of days for turkeys. I'll probably go try to pick a couple of them up on my way to work. Are they letting for, non-residents come to Washington? For what? Turkeys. For, the, for, this, for, no for this extremely late turkey season that you told us oh, about. Uh, yeah, probably. It's that's. Come it's to really Washington, good hunt turkeys in June. In June, <laughs> hunt turkeys in flip flops, man. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't. I I don't like hunting turkeys after May first. Once the mosquitoes are out and the ticks are out, which I've already found some of those, I kind of shy away from turkey hunting. But I I'll probably try to get out. It's the only show in town right now for us. And then, and then last question: you're, you're married, right? Oh yeah, two kids. Two okay, kids. Two, I, was, I was getting to yeah. is where you're at with the kid thing right now. Yeah, we. Uh, my wife and I have two boys. Two and a half and seven months, so we're pretty busy. And Everett, the older boy, has been able to tag along on a few cougar hunts. He was in a backpack with me the other day when we treat a cat for work. Um, so he knows the routine. He'll be what's he'll a be two and a half year own. old say or do when they see a cat in a tree? Um, well, the more concerning part was before we saw the cat. <laughs> I was approaching the cat, had the podcast playing, and he's got a stick back there, and he's banging around, hitting everything with the stick as we're walking in the backpack. Um, and he knows we're, he knows kind of what we're doing. He has an idea that we're out looking for a cougar, but he doesn't know the routine yet. So we're marching along, and he starts saying, "I see a cougar! I see a cougar!" And I'm, I'm close to the cat. You know, I'm within about sixty yards. I'm like, "Shit! Is this collar not working? Does he actually see a cougar?" And I'm like trying to ask him where, and I can't see where he's pointing. And <laughs> but um he hadn't he was just telling stories so when he when we get to the tree he's excited about it. i keep a distance obviously i'm not handling cats with him um but when we get to the tree we'll stay a little ways back and let bruce do all the heavy lifting at the tree and then just call the dogs to us when we're done but he's excited about it good future scientist yeah maybe all right man thanks again for joining us bart we'll talk, yeah, to, we'll you talk soon. to you guys soon later thanks See you, Barb. Later.
Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 